everybody you are listening to list it my show where me and a guest rank and list things in pop culture and i'm really really excited about my guest today you may know him for his show bullseye which is an amazing podcast and radio show which you can hear on public radio stations around the country he's interviewed celebrities and artists including jeff bridges dolly parton Catherine o'hare lynn melwell miranda tina fey ed helms will forte forrest whitaker rosie perez and a ton of others he also hosts the weekly comedy show jordan jesse go with comedian jordan morris and he's the founder of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, which is home to a ton of great shows that that I really, really enjoy, including hits like Adam Ruins Everything, Judge John Hodgman, Oh No, Ross and Carrie, and a ton of others. He's also a writer, actor, and TV host. And in there's a period, a six month period in 2006 or nine, Jesse. I think it's 2009. Uh, that sounds correct to me. That uh, uh, you may have saw him on on IFC hosting his own show. Jesse Thorne, welcome to List It, man. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm probably the first major television star of six months of 2009 <laughs> had on the program. It is a real um, thrill. I know a lot of people watched that 12-minute long news and information <laughs> comedy show. Um, and I hope that I influenced a lot of them to pick up a Samsung smartphone. Uh, <laughs> well, Jesse, think? when we did a segment about Samsung, I think I got an extra 1500 bucks. So I was very grateful for that. <laughs> what a business model they had running over there. That Yeah. Pushing a lot of Samsung. Well, Jesse, I'm stoked you're on, man. We were talking just briefly uh, before we got rolling. You know, both of you and I uh, have spent to different degrees kind of uh, a lot of time talking to people who make pop culture, whether that's TV, whether it's actors or comedians or writers. Um, but, you know, whenever I've gotten to talk to one of like my podcast heroes, that's when I get really, really excited. I remember that I, I got to years ago, I did a magazine profile. I was writing for magazines then on Ira Glass, and I was more nervous then than I think any other interview I've had combined. Jesse, tell listeners, uh, you know, for, who might be uh, kind of uh, first kind of being introduced to your work, how you got into podcasting and what you drew, what drew you to it? I mean, I started doing college radio now 20 years ago. This is, I think, my 20th year. Um, so I was, I was 19 or 20 years old at UC Santa Cruz, and UC Santa Cruz has a pretty big radio station. They do not have a broadcasting department or a communications department or even now, I think, a journalism department. But uh, they do have a radio station that people actually listen to. Like It covers the whole Monterey Bay area, which is a few million people, and Santa Cruz is the perfect place for college radio because there's people there that want to listen to... <laughs> reggae on the radio <laughs> and folk music <laughs> and basically just reggae and folk music what we were doing was a bother to them um but you know it's a it's a great place for for college radio and um i started doing a show there called the sound of young america and that show which i did at the time with my friends jordan and gene i have done i've put out that show every week for the last 20 years since i was 19 at some point we wow. changed the name of the show to bullseye um, but it has been every week of my entire adult life, essentially. Um, we started, po I start, when I say we, I started podcasting it. There was no other people involved, uh, in 2004, which was like a year and a half after I got out of school. And, um, you know, it kind of, it became my full-time job a few years later. Um, but only barely, like not no one would give me a job. I, I, I mean yeah. that I like learned to live off of the $14,000 a year I was making from it. 
uh, yeah. a few years later. And then, um, you know, a, a podcast network grew up around it over that, you know, 10 or, or 12 years. And now it's dozens of shows and dozens of employees. And, you know, we're building a, an office right now. Wow. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole thing. Yeah, it, it really does feel like podcasting has really exploded. I, I first started, I think it was 2005. And at the time we launched our first, it was I was at working at a, a, a magazine and outlet called Relevant. And we launched and we were like, we're on the Apple like top 10. Because at that point, there were like 25 podcasts. And, you know, we clipped, yeah. we quickly like slipped out of it. But it was like, oh man, it, it feels, it, it really, it was kind of the first space that kind of came up when I was around the same age as you. Kind of got into radio. I always loved radio used to keep like cassettes tapes in my boom box in my parents you know house and record things you know that i just wanted to listen back to um but it really does feel like this cool new medium that has kind of grown up around the same time guys like you and I and, and, and women like you and I were coming of age. So today we're going to be talking about our, our your favorite podcast individual episodes of all time. Um, I'm really because you are like a podcast OG and you go back so far. I'm really interested to see what direction you take it. But in your mind, what makes a, a, a podcast episode really great and particularly memorable? That's an interesting question, and it was one that I had to wrestle with because I think that the nature of a listener's relationship to podcasts is 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 more about um, depth and breadth than it is about intensity, right? Like mm. it's about this long term relationship with a host and a show that lasts for years and years. I mean, there are types of podcasts that are, I mean, you know, obviously Serial was one of the first huge podcasts culturally, um, and Serial was a limited series. So, you know, Serial was whatever it was, eight or 12 episodes. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't usually listen to that kind of podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the kinds of podcasts I listen to are about kind of a very personal, very long-term relationship. And so in that kind of thing, you know, I, I had to face the question of <laughs> how do I pick my favorite time that my friends Jimmy Pardo and Matt Belknap were just funny friends talking to each other on Never yeah. Not Funny. Um, yeah. And I actually like early in podcasting, I went to this thing called the Third Coast International Audio Festival, which is sort of like This American Life, the conference and award. <laughs> Um, you know, it's a bunch of people who make sound rich audio documentaries, uh, you know, see their work as art, um, you know, apply from ap apply for grants to document the sounds that trains make or whatever. Yeah. And they're lovely people. It's a wonderful event. And they asked me to curate a podcast panel. And they, <laughs> this was like 2006, maybe. And, um, they were like, we really like like dense, sound rich work. And I was like, I don't think that exists. <laughs> I was like, I do not think what you want is available. Yeah. I think you're thinking of public radio shows. Yeah. Um, and that has changed but over the years. But but for me, still, like what I often want to listen to in a podcast is just some people that I like being funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and there, and there's something that is, you know, disarming about a podcast that maybe doesn't exist like on a show, which I do obviously like Terry gross is like Mount Rushmore of, of just incredible interviewers and broadcasters, but there's something that exists when, 
you know, you have someone in a studio in Philadelphia and someone in LA kind of doing this kind of regimented, she has to ask certain tough questions. She has to kind of plug whatever they're doing. And then you go to see what like Mark Marin has built in a garage where people go in and they just kind of chop it up for two and a half hours. It really does create a different dynamic and relationship between interviewee and interviewer as someone who kind of, you, you know, cause you had, a, you know, worked in public radio a lot. How do you kind of see that distinction between what happens in radio and what makes like a great podcast? Yeah. You, you saying that makes me think that I should have picked Mark Marin's episode with Barack Obama uh, yeah. because when the president went on WTF, Mark <laughs> thanked me at the end. I had nothing to do with it. I, re- I remember that. It. Yeah, I remember but that. It, it may be the highlight of my career. That <laughs> my friend Mark thanked me for helping him buy microphones seven yeah. years earlier uh, while the president was nearby. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that radio is the, the biggest difference is that radio is a linear form, right? So you can't go back. Uh, you can't choose what you're listening to. Um, you it, it always exists in a sort of in an everlasting state of now, right? Um, yeah. You turn on the radio. People listen to the radio in five and ten minute increments. Generally, it's like yeah. you turn on your car, uh, you walk into the kitchen, uh, you take a shower. Like those are the chunks of listening that you do. You know, your alarm goes off in the morning and you leave the room eight minutes later. Yeah. Um, that's how radio is listened to. And it's programmed for that, uh, generally speaking. I mean, there are exceptions and some of them are the biggest successes in, in, in podcasting from radio, you know, like this American life is an exception. Yeah. But, uh, generally speaking, you're talking about something that will make sense in a chunk of five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and podcasting has to be something that you choose. And it's something that always goes from the beginning to the end. Um, and I think that is why narrative is so much more popular in podcasting than it is on the radio. Um, and I think it's also like the, the choosing it part is what builds that relationship between listener and creator. Um, that, you know, that relationship exists in radio. You know, I mean, certainly people have that relationship with, uh, with Howard Stern. People have that relationship with Rush Limbaugh to some extent. Um, uh, you know, your local morning radio DJs, you might have that relationship. You drive to work with them, but generally speaking, that is a much more central part of podcasting. You know, those morning radio DJs, even the most successful above them, uh, of them, uh, sort of on the tier below Howard Stern are still basically just introducing a Weezer record or whatever. Yeah. 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 It is interesting because there's a degree of even just the way podcasts are consumed is so intimate. A lot of people, you know, literally are the only, you know, you can be a crowd of people, but you hear someone's voice directly into your head. And especially when it becomes part of your weekly routine, there's this intimacy that I feel like forms between the listener and the host that is really unlike any other medium. You know, I guess book reading is similar because that's a very kind of individual experience. Um, But like you said, kind of the frequency and personality involved in podcasting really does kind of foster these relationships. So, all right, Jesse, I'm, you know, given all that, yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested to, to hear what you picked as your top five favorite podcast episodes, your personal favorite of all yeah. time. Let's, let's go ahead and start with number five. What do you got for us? Oh, wow. These are supposed to be in order. Okay. Number five, I'm going to say <laughs> is 
Fresh Air with Terry Gross from okay. August 30th, 2011. I'm a I'm a very regular Fresh Air listener. I, I listen okay. a few times a week. Terry is a total hero of mine. I do not think it's appropriate for me to call her Terry. I have spoken to her two times. Um, and never in person. Can I, never met her in person. Can I person. be honest? How nervous were you talking to Terry Gross? Because like I said, she holds a very special place in people's hearts who do what, I I, what, what you and I do for because, And I'll tell you why. Before the first time I talked to her, I had been on WHYY, the station where she makes the show, for many years. And I had never met her. <laughs> and like every time, you know, NPR or PRI, my previous distributor, would try and pitch my show, they'd be like, this is the next fresh air or whatever, which yeah. it has never become. But yeah. um, uh, at one time, I ran into the program director of WHYY at the public radio conference. <laughs> and I was standing at the public radio international booth and the guy at the PRI booth said, Hey, Christine, what does uh, Terry think of The Sound of Young America, which was the name of my show at the time? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and Christine said, you know, I don't know. Then she paused and she said, one time Terry told me she thought it was a stupid name. <laughs> I was like, yeah, hey, granted. You would expect no less degree of honesty from Terry Gross, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, for people who somehow have never listened to Terry Gross so in, in during her, you know, very long career in broadcasting, she is is known as uh, not just a very thoughtful interviewer, but I don't feel like she lets anything slide, which is a very difficult thing to do as an interviewer. Right. No one kind of gets off the hook. So tell me about uh, this one that you selected uh, um this is one that uh, really had some hard-hitting questions. It was called Bananas, the Uncertain Future <laughs> of a Favorite Fruit. The reason that I picked it is that it's it's something that I think Ter Terry Gross and Fresh Air do better than anybody. I think Dave Davies, uh, uh, the secondary host of Fresh Air, also does a wonderful job of this kind of thing, which is this guy wrote a book about bananas. It's about the history of bananas and like the challenges facing bananas. And they talk for an hour about bananas. It is the most fascinating, illuminating conversation yeah. that you could ever hope to have uh, uh, about any fruit. I mean, I'm, I would include even, I would include even mangoes, which is probably the best fruit. Um, but I think, I think that Fresh Air, Terry will talk about a book um, better than anyone else. Yeah, and um, and to cover. To cover a subject like this, I I personally find a good conversation with somebody who is an, a real expert to be as entertaining and informative, probably more entertaining and informative for me personally than even a you know a very densely highly produced documentary. Yeah, it, it is funny how you can walk away from an episode of Fresh Air and feel like an expert on the most obscure topic in the world. Like my, the this the part of my brain that is just storing up Jeopardy answers is is probably eighty percent from Fresh Air interviews. When you're a public radio host, which I am, uh, you get used to the fact after a while that uh, people mostly seem to listen to your work, so they have something to say when they're bored at a party, like yeah, when they exactly. run out of things to say at a cocktail party you're like okay if that's what i am that's what i am <laughs> well that's that's like partly i love like podcasts like 99 invisible you know but that's one of the primary reasons i do it so i don't run out of weird random yeah. things to talk about well 99 i'm glad you brought that up now my next pick is 99 invisible 
Okay. Uh, it's episode 308. So Roman Mars, the host of 99% Invisible, is a very old friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and a really wonderful dude. I knew him before 99% Invisible. I used to listen to his show, Invisible Inc., on KALW in San Francisco when it, he was just a volunteer going into the the high school radio station. KALW okay. is is registered, is based at a high school and, and registered to the school district. So Roman would go in and do this show that, to give you an idea of when this was, was billed as a zine on the radio. <laughs> a zine? Yeah. If you're wondering, was it 1995? The answer is yes. Um, and uh, Roman was such a brilliant guy. And uh, he ended up, um, among other things, uh, helping create Snap Judgment with Glenn Washington, yep. um, which is a, a great public radio show and podcast. Um, and then he created 99% Invisible, which is about uh, which is about architecture and design very broadly. And this episode 308 is about curb cuts. Um, you know the uh, uh, the angled uh, the angled causeways or whatever on the corner of a of a sidewalk, right? Yeah. Um, for wheelchairs. And the reason, I mean, I've loved many 99% Invisible. I literally started listening to it when episode one came out. Um, but uh, I, and I've loved many over many years, but this one in particular was meaningful to me because it was about a guy named Ed Roberts. And Ed, Ed was probably the most significant activist for people living with disabilities um, in United States history. Um, he was, uh, paralyzed, uh, by polio. He could move mm -hmm. one of his fingers and nothing else below the, below the neck. Um, and so he breathed with a breathing machine and, uh, eventually he got a motorized wheelchair that he could move around with, uh, you know, he moved, he controlled with his finger that he could move. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he had a portable respirator that he could use to breathe. But when he was younger, he just had to be in an iron lung all the time. Mm -hmm. And he was a very good student and got into UC Berkeley, but UC Berkeley said he couldn't go because they didn't have housing to accommodate him because he needed medical care. That he couldn't be a student. And he and his mom, Zona, uh, fought the university and the state uh, to create housing for students with disabilities so that they could access the University of California system. Yeah. And um, Ed went on to essentially found the independent living movement for people with disabilities um, and, among other things, became uh, the head of the State Department of Rehabilitation, which was um, the, the um, agency in charge of uh, assisting people with disabilities in the state of California. And that was after they said he would never be anything but a vegetable. Mm -hmm. And Ed very famously said that when they told him he was going to be a vegetable, he decided to be an artichoke, uh, prickly <laughs> on the outside, but with a sweetheart in the middle. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mentioned that Ed went to Berkeley and when he was at Berkeley, he met my dad and he and my dad were, um, became later on best friends. And so when I was a kid, uh, my dad worked for Ed and we spent a lot of time at Ed's house in uh, Oakland. And, um, you know, I would ride around on his wheelchair and hear him yell at people. 
because <laughs> he really didn't take any mess from anybody. Yeah. And uh, he was a, that was when I learned that um, you don't have to have uh, fully operational lungs to smoke a joint. Um, <laughs> Ed was really something else. And so this, this episode, I just, Roman didn't know that I had known Ed and I didn't know that Roman was doing an episode about Ed Roberts and uh, until I pressed play on an episode mm. called Curb Cuts. Yeah. And, um, and I was, you know, I was like, wow, <laughs> that he, you know, Ed died when I was like 13 or 14. I was like, wow, there's, there's Ed's voice. There's Zona's voice. Yeah. And, um, I actually, during the pandemic, I started thinking about Ed's mom, Zona and, um, my, my father and stepmother had gotten married at their house and Zona was the photographer. And, um, I found an article that was like relatively recent in the Oakland Tribune about her. Like maybe it was like five or eight years old. And so I, I messaged on Twitter the, the person who wrote the article and said, hey, have you heard anything from Zona? And she said, no, I mean, I wrote that article eight years ago, but um, I, I can give you her number that I had then. And I called her and she's alive and kicking. She's a hundred years old. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, and she's like, yeah, I have to mask up for my walk or my daily walk around the block. But she was, mm. uh, she was a hundred percent there. And she goes, <laughs> the, like, she's, she remembered who I was completely. Yeah. And um, I mean, I haven't seen her in since the nineties. Wow. Um, and uh, uh, she said, as I recall, I was the photographer at your parents' wedding. But at the end of the day, I realized there wasn't any film in my camera. <laughs> and I was like, yep, that's true. That's why there's almost no photographs of my father and stepmother getting married. Oh, man. It, it's so cool when shows, and I feel like this is one great thing that uh, Roman and the 99PI team have done, is... You know, it's easy to think about ideas or concepts. And, you know, I think this goes for shows like Radiolab, which will do a similar thing in the science world that Roma Mars is doing in uh, art and design. And, and you kind of see this in different issues, which is you can take these big ideas, but when you kind of put them in narrative form, it not only helps people understand, you know, develop a deeper understanding of the issue or the idea itself, but there's really injects humanity. I feel like great podcasts inject a sense of humanity into big ideas in a way that really no other medium can. Like, I think about how much empathy that I've had for different people or different things or communities because I was introduced to them through podcasting. Um, what is it about the medium that you feel like makes storytelling to the degree that you can, you know, have these sort of intimate reactions with the subjects of stories? Like I said, that it just feels different, even than like a good kind of documentary or something. I mean, I think the number one reason is that to make a film documentary that is as that I would say this: the fundamental challenge of making a film documentary is that if it is not something that is happening right now, you can only tell the story retrospectively. Yeah, and you may have footage of some of it, but otherwise you have to be, you know, I know one of Ira's heroes and one of my heroes is the filmmaker, Errol Morris. Yeah. And like Errol Morris, his great gift is finding ways to sort of revivify the past, right? Everything mm -hmm. from, you know, 
stock footage to reenactments to yeah. a thousand other techniques, all of which are designed to show things that happened in the past. Yeah. And besides that, he is a great genius at um, getting people to directly engage the camera in a way that they don't ordinarily in documentaries, right? Yeah. But all of those are workarounds. And in audio, you don't have to do that. You, yeah. Someone telling their story is the medium. It li- is native to the medium. It is not something that you have to create a workaround for. And I think that is the reason why you can create stuff, stories about things that have happened in the past um, in podcasts that are as affecting as, you know, Grey Gardens or whatever the greatest film yeah. documentaries are. And I think Ira, you know, took this on when they made the This American Life TV show. Mm-hmm. And the This American Life TV show was breathtaking. I thought it was so good. They only yeah. stopped doing it because they realized they didn't have time to make a TV show and a radio show. Yeah. But, um, you know, the the biggest challenge that he faced, I heard him talk about it. Um, I think I talked to him about it on, on The Sound of Young America at the time, is basically, oh, wait, what do we do? How do we know it's a good story if it didn't already happen? <laughs> and yeah. If it didn't, and if it did already happen, how do we get it on film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and that's the, you know, the cool thing about podcasts is like, I don't always expect the payoff, you know? And I think that having listened to This American Life for so long is like some episodes kind of end with a bow. Some are sort of open-ended. And I think podcast makes you realize, hey, that's okay. Not all, you know, some stories, uh, you know, don't always have the Hollywood ending. And I feel like podcast sort of lends itself to that. Uh, Jesse, before we get to your number three, I wanted, I had one note about um, about an episode of Fresh Air that I wanted to mention since that was number yeah. five on your list. That was with John Hodgman. Um, oh. And I remember listening to his interview and i don't know about you i think just how my brain is wired i always remember the place i am when i'm listening to a very memorable podcast and i was so sure that 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 terry gross hated him because he had never really invited on okay so so i it was during a time he was he was talking about his book vacation land and and i and i had i owned his like kind of fake trivia books i was a huge john hodgman fan and I remember that interview kind of started John Hodgman for people who, who, you know, haven't done like a deep dive or, or engaged with his work on a, on, you know, uh, you know, a high level is brilliant, super funny, deadpan, and is just incredibly charming in, in his own kind of way. And every time he's on something, you just can't help but listen. He's such a great speaker. He thinks so in such an interesting way. So I was really excited to listen to the interview. And he, it was an interview that he was funny. They talk, he talked about wealth and privilege. He talked about, um, you know, kind of, he broke down some of his essays. He talked about his grief and his mother's death and it ended with him. And, and he kind of conceded that he doesn't consider himself overly religious, but talking about how meaningful the Lord's prayer had been to him in the context of his mother's death. And it, and the podcast ended with him reading the Lord's prayer while kind of choking back tears. And I thought, man, what a ride that someone as thoughtful and vulnerable like when you like a John Hodgman and someone who is as challenging of an interviewer as Terry Gross come together to create this beautiful kind of memorable experience I'm a big basketball fan 
It reminded me of the Jimmy Valvano speech from, you know, when he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and was accepting an SB award. And he said, there are three things we should all do every day. Uh, one is laugh. And I'm kind of paraphrasing here. The two is think. And the third is cry. And if you've done those three things in a single day, you've had one hell of a day. And I remember listening to that interview. I'm like, Terry Gross did all three of those things, not just in a day, in about 30 minutes. And that takes a real skill. And I think that's a, it's a really beautiful thing that someone like John Hodgman, who've obviously Obviously, you've worked with a, a ton um, and really kind of brought more to the masses. And Terry Gross, when you put those type of personalities together, podcasting can really create something beautiful. Do you want to hear my favorite uh, Judge John Hodgman episode? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So this is the show that I do with John, who I met through The Sound of Young America. He came on The Sound of Young America as a guest for his first book. He was so funny, and he was coming to town for a book reading and i went to his book reading it was me and my wife in the audience dave eggers was there with his baby um who i guess is now a teenager (laughs) um (laughs) and uh there was like the guy who drove hodgman around that day um and some people from the bookstore and i think that might have been it and hodgman did a show with jonathan colton his, his best buddy and um it was fantastic we met them afterwards and that's how i became friends with Hodgman. He became a famous person like four days later. Yeah. Uh, he went <laughs> yeah. on the Daily Show and like that led to him getting the the Mac versus PC yeah, ads, the he's Apple, the PC yeah. in those and getting a job on the Daily Show. Yeah. So anyway, we do this show called Judge John Hodgman where it's real people with real problems and John is the judge of their real problems. It's like Judge Judy, only gentler and sweeter. And... This episode 54 was called Defleeter House. Um, <laughs> and this I, is also known as the Bat Brothers. And basically, this has <laughs> been like seven years or whatever. I still can't yeah. even talk about it without laughing. These two guys were brothers and they were from Kansas and they bought a house together to save money, which is a thing yeah. you can do in Kansas. So yeah. they bought a house for like $50,000 or something. Because it was cheaper than rent. Yeah. It was like a big farmhouse, but the the bathroom had a hole in the wall to the outside. And bats kept getting in. Oh, no. And their dispute was, so that was the basis of this. And their dispute was, one of the brothers wanted to fix the hole. And the other one just wanted to make a rule that you always kept the bathroom door closed and then keep a dictionary in there in case a bat got in. <laughs> <laughs> Only a true legal mind could sort these matters. Yeah. And that guy was totally serious. And he was like, look, we're only going to live here for like two years. It's going to cost yeah. us $5,000 to fix the hole or whatever. Yeah. And we're here to save money. So what we should do is we should just keep a dictionary in there in case a bat gets in and we'll use the the bathroom like a bat airlock so that the bats <laughs> never get into the rest of the house. <laughs> and um you know I it like Hodgman brought his sincere wisdom to this which was yeah. the thing that the thing that I didn't well, like I created Judge John Hodgman um but Hodgman is its animating creative force. If yeah. that makes sense, like I thought of the idea, John Hodgman should be a judge, but it is, it is Hodgman's, it is who Hodgman is that makes the show what it is, um, and it's all kind of built around who he is. And the and the special thing about it is that he really is a wise person, wise and caring person. So yeah, I thought of it just as a comedy show, but 
really what it is, is these people come on the show and he finds, you know, he finds within these two brothers, like, what is it that is really at the heart of their conflict? Mm. You know, because yeah. it's not just about bats. <laughs> Although, yeah. The bats were a real concern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's never just the bats. It's all, right. yeah. It, 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 what I love about that too is th- there has been, I feel like podcasting has created this almost like openness for deep conversations that are emotionally vulnerable that a lot of people who before kind of diving into, it could be a conversation with like, a, even like, like a comedian or actor that I don't really have any relationship with. But when you get them in a, you know, whether it's someone who is, um, you, you know, someone who's embraced like mental health and counseling and recovery, like a Marin, or even like, just like a bro, like Joe Rogan, all of a sudden that person is going in places that you never really thought you'd hear them talk about and really kind of introduces sides of people's minds and makes people comfortable about digging into the issues beyond the issues, whether it's something like kind of two brothers and John Hodgman or, you know, a guy promoting a movie that's suddenly being asked about his relationship with his father. You know, podcasting, I feel like, has created this, you know, space where intimacy is okay. Um, So number three on my list is one that has no intimacy or meaning at all. Yeah. It's an episode of Never Not Funny, which is uh, Jimmy Pardo, comedian Jimmy Pardo's podcast. I've been another one that I've been listening to since episode one. And it is uh, it is older than my show, Jordan, Jesse Go, and almost as old as the podcast of The Sound of Young America. I think they started in 2005 or something. Yeah. And uh, Jimmy is the most quick witted comedian I've ever known in my life. Uh, his act has almost no jokes in it. It is just him doing silly stuff, talking to the audience. And it is just, he's, he's just one of those guys that just brings his entire, everything about his persona is funny. Um, yeah. Like he is a real sort of sharp talking white guy from South Chicago uh, who, uh, just everything is everything is clipped. Everything he says is clipped and uh, confident in a ridiculous way. Yeah, um, and he's a very sweet guy. And his co-host Matt Belknap is a is a very old comedy friend of mine. Anyway, they had Andy Daly on the show, who is I think the, probably the funniest guy in the world. And uh, Andy Daly, I guess his biggest credit is still like Mad TV or like yeah. he was the bad guy in Yogi Bear the movie. Yeah, but yeah. like he truly is one of the funniest people. I think he might be the funniest person in the world. And he came on, he's good buddies with Jimmy. And they had been talking about, they recorded in this like strip mall in the Valley, uh, the San Fernando Valley, North of LA. And there was this 7-Eleven in the strip mall. And they had, they were, they, they had taken down half of their sign or they had changed their sign. (laughs) And so for weeks they had been talking about, I mean, this shows you how little the show was about had been talking about what was going on with this sign. And finally, Andy Daly came on the show and he said, I'm going to go find out. <laughs> so he just got on his phone. They, they didn't have a phone machine. So they just put yeah. a, a, you know, a cell phone on speaker next to a microphone. Andy got his phone, went and got a wig from his car. <laughs> because <laughs> if you do sketch an improv, apparently you always have a wig in your car. <laughs> and like went in to interrogate the employees. <laughs> <laughs> like sort of like one of those field segments where David Letterman uh, puts yeah, yeah, a, yeah. an earpiece on someone. He goes to Taco Bell, the, yeah. Yeah, like what's going on with the sign? They did not learn anything. Yeah. Uh, it was totally useless. It, it, the people at 7-Eleven don't know about the sign outside. Yeah. They don't even know about 
Slurpees. They don't know. They're just, <laughs> they, it's someone they found that was willing to work overnight. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there and is, and is pleasant is nice to people. Yeah. Um, or at least not actively mean to people. And so, yeah. yeah, it was just silly nonsense. And I picked that one because it was a particularly great episode, but all episodes of that show are great to me because yeah. they are my ear friends. I mean, they happen to be my real life friends too, but yeah. like, uh, it's not like we're always hanging out all the time, except for when I listen to their show. It's like my time to spend with the some of the funniest people I know. Yeah. Um, and to me, that that will always be one of the best things about podcasting, whether it's people I, I know, you know, I know enough, especially LA comedy people that when I listen to a comedy podcast, usually like one of the people I've met, but I'm also enough of a like a homebody family man that I don't hang out with any of these people regularly because yeah. I don't hang out yeah. with anyone. Um, you know, dads from my kid's school is who I hang out with, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it is that special thing of, of laughing with your friends in, in podcast form. And I think ideally that is, that is the, the goal of a certain kind of podcast. I also yeah. picked, by the way, an episode of my show, Jordan, Jesse go, which is a, a sort of formatted, like never not funny. And that it's really just silly nonsense the whole time. Just total bull. 100%. What, so for Jordan Jesse Go, which episode would you suggest if people want to jump in that that in your mind? Because you've been doing this forever. Because I mean, the, you know, because everybody understands what you, I love when you said like ear friends. Because that's how yeah. I feel when I like go. You know, like how does this get made? Or one of those like, oh, yeah. these are the the. I might not be contributing to the conversation audibly, but I kind of feel like I'm a part of this because I'm laughing along. So for Jordan Jesse Go, which is it's a hilarious show. I, mean, I usually say I try and convince people not to start from the beginning because we probably said things that we would now regret back then. <laughs> um, uh, seriously, um, you can go back and listen. Just know that I don't stand behind yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I usually tell people to listen to the n most recent one and just not worry about it. Just subscribe and, and listen. Give it give it a couple episodes. It may be if a guest that you, you know, if you really love yeah. whatever, Paul F. Tompkins or something, go back and listen to a Paul F. Tompkins episode. But the one that yeah. I picked uh, was episode 431. And the guest was a comedian named Hampton Yount. And um, we had been picking uh, like mottos for each year. And our motto for that year, I think it was like 2016 or something like that, was get them, get them, get them. It was like, go, 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 go for it. Right. That was mm -hmm. sort of the theme of it. Right. Yeah. And we have this segment on the show called Momentous Occasions. And in Momentous Occasions, our listeners call in when something amazing happens to them. They, they buy a house or they, uh, they see someone walking around with a goat standing on their head or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, this comedian called in. A comedian named Glenn Tickle, who was a listener, but we didn't know. What a great and name for a comedian, by the way. <laughs> a fantastic name for a comedian. He called in from stage. He said, I'm recording my album right now, my first album, and I'm calling into you from the stage, and the, the audience wants to tell you something. He turned the phone to the audience, and the audience went, rawr, rawr, rawr. and we could not tell what yeah. the audience, had no idea what the audience was yeah. saying. And somehow we settled on that the audience was saying Garabba. 
Now it turns out later, <laughs> later we figured out that what they were, what he had them saying was get him, get him, get him. But they just yeah. all mulled, you know, mixed together. And we heard Garaba truly in our hearts. And my co-host Jordan said that Garaba stands for, and he said this off the top of his head. It's so stupid. He said, it's what you do in an emergency. And, and it stands for get help, assess the situation, <laughs> read up on it. Assess the situation again. <laughs> be kind to yourself. Abstinence. <laughs> I mean, all sage advice. <laughs> I mean, if I'm do. an emergency, if I'm in an emergency, none of those individually seem like bad ideas. <laughs> no. Be kind to yourself. Okay. Yeah. So another comedy one that I picked. Yeah. This could be number two, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is an episode of this show called Hollywood Handbook. Uh, okay. It's called Triumph at Comic Con. And is Sean, this Triumph the the insult dog. No, this was just a great triumph that they had oh. at Comic Con. <laughs> so Sean and Hayes are the hosts of this show. They are both very accomplished comedy writers. Yeah, mostly writers, not not so much performers, but very accomplished. They've written on many great television shows. Each of them has. And on this show, the premise of the show is that they are Hollywood insiders. And uh, every one of their guests is their close personal friend, and they're and they're going to let you in on the inside world of how successful everyone that's on their show and they are in in entertainment and show business. Yeah, and it is a very high effort listen. <laughs> like it is, it is a level of comedy work that not yeah. not many podcasts could possibly be worth. Like yeah. emotionally speaking, I feel like I'm going through the ringer listening to an entire, you know, 70 minute long podcast of insincerity um, yeah. <laughs> and, and smugness where the joke is how awful the hosts are. Um, yeah. But they are so funny. I mean, yeah. they are truly among the funniest people that exist and they're so good at being smug. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They're not smug guys in real life in my experience, yeah. but they're so good at it. Like, they're like Chevy Chase level good at being smug. Yeah. And, and I mean, they're faking it. Um, yeah. And yeah. so on this episode, they recorded a live episode at Comic-Con on the Conoco stage, Conan O'Brien's company. Yeah. And when they got there, the house was full. They were on early in the afternoon and the stage was sponsored by Funko Pop, which makes collectible figurines. Okay. And they learned that everyone in the audience had gotten an exclusive Funko Pop that was only available by showing up to the Conoco stage. Yeah. And only the first full house would get one of these. So was, there was like yeah. 500 of them. It was like a 500-seat theater. Every one of those 500 people got this Funko Pop that you can't get anywhere else. So the entire crowd is people who are who obsessively collect Funko Pops. Yeah. <laughs> no one is there no to see comedy. No relation to the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a full theater of, yeah. of audience who are all there to get this Funko Pop, which they already have. Conan's not going on for eight hours. Yeah. And so they are just sitting there watching a podcast they've never heard of with a very complicated and, as I said, emotionally intensive premise. Yeah. And so... They just eat the entire time they're on stage. <laughs> just 45 minutes of just eating. Just terrible. And they're, yeah, yeah. they're being so funny. No one in the audience likes it. Literally no one. 
So this episode of the podcast is not just that. It is them in the studio breaking down their appearance and talking about how great it went. <laughs> so, with each successive, you know, four minute clip of them just completely eating yeah. They come back on in the studio and talk about how great it went and how great the next part is going to go. Uh, and just how much like specific things about what the audience loved about what they were doing. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it is a piece of art on a, on a whole other level. Um, oh. it, it is really a wonderful, I mean, their show is so funny Yeah, in general, but um, that particular episode was really, really a standout. I have to check that out. I love, I love like commitment to comedy like that. Like I remember before it was like an adult swim series, uh, Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington did on cinema at cinema, which is like a fake movie review show, which would ultimately end with Tim Heidecker just ranting, uh, you know, in character about something completely unrelated to that week's movie too. But it, it's a commitment to a high concept joke that if the, if the host cracks at all, the whole joke falls apart and you have to have a level of comedian that is is willing to commit to it and and the payoff is sort of this long term even like i feel like that's why conan has has transitioned so well into podcasting is because ultimately conan on his podcast is to a degree playing a character this sort of version of himself you know where he is the unself-aware goofball and i feel like that's why it worked that's why his his transition to that has worked because it's like oh he gets it if you if you commit on this level in a podcast it will work yeah I'm thinking about this time. So Tim and Eric have been on my show a few times over the years. And uh, Eric is like my, I think he's like my neighbor. He lives like a, a block oh, wow. from me. Um, but anyway, uh, I think the first time they were on may have been before Tom goes to the mayor, like long, yeah. long ago. Oh, uh, old school. I was a, yeah. yeah, I was a Mr. Show obsessive and, and Bob Odenkirk yeah. kind of put them on. And um, anyway, one time they came on, it was in my old apartment. I used to do my show out of my apartment. And uh <laughs> Eric brought a Casio keyboard and said they only wanted to talk about jazz. <laughs> he was just playing the presets on the Casio keyboard and talking about how much he loved jazz. Oh, it was great. But the um the Hollywood handbook guys are more like smug doofuses and less like abrasive assholes than yeah. than Tim and Eric yeah. characters, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of put-ons, my my number one. No is, pressure. And this is this is cheating a little bit because um, this is a, a show that I produced. Although my production of this show was just a matter of putting opening and closing credits on it, so I okay. did not actually make any of the content of the show. It's an episode of the Coil and Sharp podcast called "Maniacs in a Living Hell." <laughs> And <laughs> what a title. <laughs> Coil, Coil and Sharp were a radio put on duo, radio comedy duo in the 60s in San Francisco, the early 60s, not like the yippie 60s, the like yeah. beatnik 60s. And um, one of them was a sort of young, aspiring media guy, Mal Sharp. Yeah. And one of them, Jim Coyle, he met in a rooming house uh, in downtown San Francisco, like an SRO. And um, Jim Coyle was a was a professional con man, <laughs> and 
<laughs> they decided to get uh, to get their own radio show and do man on the street put-ons and their man on the street put-ons are some of the most bizarre and surreal and amazing things you can imagine like they're more they're more bizarre and beautiful and hilarious than like anything sasha baron cohen has ever done and i'm a fan wow like, like more and this was in 1964 or whatever yeah so this is like og like eric andre stuff exactly yes and so they would go out on the street with a, a uh eventually a hidden microphone but sometimes a handheld microphone this one was a handheld microphone they would wear suits and they say they would look for the people who were wearing long wing shoes because they were the most credulous and <laughs> but what's amazing about this is that no one ever thinks they're being pranked like yeah. being pranked yeah. was not a thing yeah. being disingenuous yeah. was not a thing at the time yeah. and it was not invented until eight years later yeah so in maniacs and the living hell the premise is that they're offering that they're hosting a radio segment offering a san franciscan a job so they're talking to this guy and mal is the host and jim is the uh is the business owner so jim is describing what happens while mal is just kind of a very mal very genial warm guy and they're talking to this guy that they're offering a job and they say oh it's it uh i'm the owner of a tourist attraction (laughs) so it's a and this is over the course of like this this rolls out over the course of like 10 minutes it's like it's a pit it's like a newbie working inside the pit and he says in the pit are flames because people come to see a simulation of the fires of hell (laughs) so you'll be working in the pit among the flames and the guy is, is and mal is going back to the guy. or is this a job you're interested in he says well yes very much so yeah very much so i'd be i'd be glad to give it a try and uh and and coil goes coil goes and in the in the pit amongst the flames are maniacs it's your job to control the maniacs <laughs> and he says you do get a lunch break, but you can't bring a lunch and you can't leave the pit. So you have to catch the bats. There's bats everywhere in the pit. And people throw things at you in the pit. But you get a lunch break, so you catch the bats and you can roast and eat the bats in the flames. And this goes on for like 10 minutes. And at the end of it, they say, well, is this a job you'd be interested in? And he says, well, of course I would. Uh, You know, I'd be willing to give it a try. (laughs) (laughs) It's like this window into another world. Like the fact that it's 1963 or whatever makes it so extraordinary, both that this is such a bizarre and surreal idea and that these like real people would just do this. Like they'd just say yes to this. Like yeah. there's an episode where they convince someone to make extra money by growing sugar bowls out of his head. <laughs> that sci- a lot of them come up, th- a lot of them start with scientists can now. Did yeah. you know that scientists, <laughs> yeah. and then they move into them convincing the person to participate in the, th- yeah. in the crazy thing that they've made up. So many years ago, when I was doing The Sound of Young America, still in Santa Cruz, where I went to college, um, I heard about these and I bought a CD that that had come out on Henry Rollins' label that was a reissue of their first oh, record cool. album. And I was like, this is the funniest thing ever. Who are these guys? And I Googled it and um, Jim Coyle had died um, and he had... <laughs> 
<laughs> and Mal had told him, what did he tell him? He told him that he died in like a, in, in a, in attempting to skydive without a parachute or something like that. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> but it was in the New York Times. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I, I found Mal. And I interviewed him on the show. I mean, I was like 23 or something. Yeah. And he was probably 65. Okay. And uh, he had a whole archive of all of his, all of their work. Oh, wow. And he and his daughter, Jennifer, had been putting together like a little box set. They did a TV pilot too that's also really amazing. And um, they were putting together a little box set and they had it all. They had digitized all of it, but they didn't really have anything to do with the digitized version of these old tapes. Like, the, you know, they were the kind of tapes that they had to like bake to, to get one last play out of them. Yeah. That's a thing you do with magnetic tapes. <laughs> and, um, and I said, hey, you know, I just started this thing called podcasting. I mean, started in this thing called podcasting. Do you think I can make a podcast of them? And Mal said, yeah, of course. And I said, just so you know, I will not give you any money for this. <laughs> <laughs> and Mal said, "Yeah, sure. I'm. I'm just glad to. I'm just glad to yeah, have it out. Live there. on. Yeah. And um, he invited. He was like a local legend in San Francisco, especially in North Beach, where he had this this kind of hot jazz band where he played clarinet called the the Big Money and Jazz Band that played t- twice a week in in North Beach. There's a huge, like, literally building wall sized mural of him in North Beach in San Francisco." Mm. And he invited me and my wife out to dinner. We went out to dinner with him and his wife. And he sort of became a hero mentor to me. Mm. And, um, you know, we went through a hundred bits from his archives, put out a hundred episodes of that podcast, wow. which are still up. It's still totally amazing. As there's one where they <laughs> try and convince a woman to <laughs> rent out her children to childless couples. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of good ones and uh, anyway um, one of the big sadnesses for me about the coronavirus epidemic I mean there are obviously so many um, but one was that Mal died um, in like the end of February beginning of March of, of 2020 and I was really grateful. I got to talk to the, the uh, there was a obit for him in the New York Times and, and one in the, in the Chronicle in San Francisco. And um, I was really grateful to get to talk to those people. But, um, you know, he was such a special guy and uh, such a hero in comedy, you know, huge inspiration for the Upright Citizens Brigade. And, and like I said, Henry Rollins and, and many, many other people. And, um, in a way, I felt like I never got to be sad about him mm. passing away because, um, you know, all of a sudden the entire world was on fire. And then um, not all that long after that, my own dad passed away. Oh, man. Um, and I never, I think those two things and me never really getting to be sad about either of them in the way that you wish you could. Um, will always kind of be intermingled for me because in in some ways, you know, it's not like I was so close with Maller. I talked to him every day on the phone, but he was just somebody who had had this extraordinary career doing crazy stuff his way, was a community leader in the very best way, like not mm-hmm. trying to make people do things, but just by being in his neighborhood, being friends with everyone, like 
every waiter knew who he was. Like, you know, my mom's best friend who worked in restaurants in San Francisco f- forever. Uh, she said, I heard that you know Mal Sharp. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, doesn't everybody? Mm. Um, and his unequivocal welcoming of me to the margins of show business when I had no business being there um, was so important to me. Um, and also just that, that that bit is so, so funny. It is so funny. <laughs> like for something 55 years later to still be funny. <laughs> Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it has to be literally timeless. Like, you have to have a sense of humor yeah. that isn't based on trends. It's just based on, you know, what people will always think is funny. And and the role that you now get to have in preserving his legacy. And I, pre- I also, man, I appreciate you being so vulnerable. I know, you know, obviously this time in life has caused a lot of people to reflect, but not a lot of people are dealing with the level of, uh, of grief that you've expressed there, man. And I really appreciate the vulnerability. And also you know, how you can, you know, at least have some comfort that your work is doing something to preserve the legacy of these, of these types of creators, whether that's someone, people that you've interviewed who, you know, I know it's always difficult. I know, you know, when, you know, Marin interviews some, has someone who he's interviewed has passed away. It's such a beautiful way to remember their legacy. It's just, Hey, remember a couple of years ago when we talked and it was just two people talking and it's really cool that obviously, you know, the work that you do not only causes people to think, laugh, and cry, like those things that we were saying, but it also preserves the, a legacy and memory of a lot of the people you get to work with, man. I think that's a really, really cool thing. And you have such a deep well. Before I go, Jesse, if, if Wait, you hold had on, to- hold on, hold on, hold on, because I want to talk about one more dead person. Yes, please do. Please do. Okay. So as I mentioned, I, I picked an episode from each of the shows that I actually host. Yeah, 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 yeah. I picked an episode of Bullseye. Um, it actually is from when, I think it's from before we renamed it Bullseye. By the way, Roman Mars is the one who thought of the name Bullseye. Um, but uh, it was an interview from 2009 with Bill Withers, the singer-songwriter who was most famous for, you know, Ain't No Sunshine and Lean On Me and yeah. Lovely Day and Use Me and uh, Just the Two of Us and um, so many, so many great songs. I think you know, with probably Stevie Wonder and Curtis Mayfield, the greatest soul singer songwriters of all time. Yeah. And, um, I I was still doing the show by myself, like while I was doing other stuff as well. So putting out an hour long public radio show every week, uh, in my apartment, um, with no help. And, um, I got this press release for a movie called soul power. That was a documentary about, the concert that accompanied the rumble in the jungle in Zaire. Mm, yeah. Uh, the famous uh, Muhammad yeah, Ali Heavyweight fight. fight, yeah. And there was this incredible concert that had James Brown and the Fanya All-Stars and um, just a, a, a monumental lineup of, of musical acts. And Bill Withers was one of them. And I got this press release for the documentary. I emailed right right back. I said, oh, this is my kind of music. I would love to do something for this. And they said, well, we have the directors, but we also actually, I don't know if you've heard of him, but we got one of the musicians from the show is going to be at the press day. If you want to come to the press day, his name is Bill Withers. Is that something you'd be interested in? And I was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sorry. What? They said Bill Withers. Uh, so I can yeah. choose between the guys that edited this footage and Bill yeah. Withers. Yeah. A legend, a literally American icon. Yeah. And they, what they didn't know, I can only presume is that Bill Withers had been completely retired from the music industry since the early 1980s. Like he pretty much made just the two of us and quit. Oh, wow. Just the two of us with Grover Washington was his last record. Um, he was in a bad record deal in, this is in like 84 or something like that. And he just quit the business forever. Mm. He had not done any interviews since then. Wow. He had not done anything in public other than like appear on a friend's morning radio show in like the early 2000s Yeah, (laughs) in 20 years. And I went and like showed up at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills or whatever, where they have these press days. And he's in a courtyard or in a conference room. And Pasadena Magazine finishes up their interview with <laughs> Bill Withers. And I walk in there with this equipment. And, um, you know, Bill Withers' songs, I think what's most special about them is how plain they are. Um, you know, if you think of a song like lean on me, there is no cliche in it, but there is also no filigree. Like yeah. it is as direct and, and plain, uh, an expression of feeling as you can have. And he was like that. Um, he was grumpy and funny and he really gave me the business. Like he really was like, who the F is this white boy got to dance? Um, yeah. But as he gave me the business, you know, I, I like gave it back to him a little bit and laughed at the right stuff and didn't, didn't mm-hmm. back up, you know? And um, I could tell that, he was sharing stuff with me that he did not in, to come there intending to share and that he was, didn't come there intending to speak so broadly and deeply yeah. about his life to, you know, a 30 year old white dude he'd never met in his life. Um, and it was one of, I, I just thought it was one of the best interviews I'd ever done. Even then I was like this, I'm, it was just an honor to be in a room with this person. One of the wisest, smartest, funniest people yeah. that had ever been on the show. And at the end, I um I gave him a record album and asked him to sign it, which is not something that I mean, this is something I've done a total of twice in my career. <laughs> um and I said, Mr. Withers, this isn't usually something I do, but I did bring a record. I wonder if you would, I wonder if you would sign it for me. And he said, you know, in his West Virginia voice, yes, yes, of course, Jesse, I would. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually, I'm moving my microphone. You can probably hear it on the podcast because it's right behind me as I sit on this. Um, But he signed it to me and he wrote, thanks for your time and thanks for listening. Oh, wow. And Yeah, um, Yeah, it's right behind him. Yeah. You know, I thought of it as being my privilege to spend time with this person who was one of the artists that meant most to me in the world. Mm. Um, That it was my privilege to hear what he had learned from a really tough 
you know, he grew up in a coal mining town, a Jim Crow coal mining town, you know? He joined the Navy and was a career Navy. He didn't start recording records until he was 30 because he was just trying to get out of, he was just trying to get out of town because he didn't want to die of the black lung like every relative he had. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, this is my privilege to sit here with this dude. This is my, this is a gift to me. And when I saw that inscription that he wrote, I, f- I felt like, I felt like he was telling me that I had given him something which hadn't even occurred to me, right? Like it, all I, in my mind, my job was to extract from people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to, and in the, you know, just as plainly as he could, you know, write and use me just keep on using me until you use yeah. me up, you know, or the same thing that makes us laugh, makes us cry, or I hope she'll be happier with him or whatever, you know, like these perfect plain descriptions of what it is to be a person, right? In his songs. He wrote, thanks for your time and thanks for listening. And I thought, well, <laughs> maybe I do have something to offer the world, right? Maybe I, maybe my listening is a service that I am doing, you know, maybe it is a value. And like, you know, I mentioned my dad, um, I mentioned my dad worked with Ed on independent living, but he had, he was an activist and organizer his entire life. He was a, a leader in the veterans peace movement, particularly. And that was my whole childhood. It was like going to meetings with him, going to marches with him, whatever. And, he founded an NGO that did community owned development work in the third world. And, and I always thought, well, here's what, what do I do? I, you know, bullshit on the microphone. You know what I mean? Like I talk to comedians about what's funny, you know? And, um, I think that moment with Bill Withers where I kind of like, where he kind of put the, put me to the test, you know, and decided I was all right. Yeah. And then thanked me. For me, was like a moment when I thought, I look, I'm not, I'm not making it so that people with wheelchairs can go to the grocery store when they couldn't before, you know what I mean? But I am I am doing something that is worth being proud of. I definitely think you are, man. I feel like, you know. Sometimes I think of podcasts as these little digital like empathy capsules where, you know, you give time and you're willing to listen. And the payoff is you just understand people and things better. And I feel like coming out of the last few years that we've all, you know, kind of experienced these levels of just vitriol and, you know, no dis you know, discourse has been, you know, civil, empathetic human discourse has, you know, sort of fallen by the wayside and fight in favor of just anger and you know everyone kind of yelling at each other it's stories like that that i think give me hope and make me proud 
to, you know, have be working in a very, very small way, you know, especially compared to, to the guys like you who have, you know, had such an impact in a medium that values those two things, time and listening. You know, a lot of great podcasts, they're hour, they run a couple hours and it really, obviously the whole exercise is an exercise in listening. And that story is such a powerful reminder of, of why I think, you know, people like you are doing such great work. And man, I really appreciate you willing to kind of have that depth of reflection because I know, I know it's easy on you're used to being on my side of the mic where, you know, someone's kind of asking you questions and being on that side where you kind of have to kind of be on your feet and is a challenge, uh, you know, but man, I really appreciate just that degree of emotional and intellectual vulnerability to kind of really reflect on, on your own work, man. It's, it's, it's been a real privilege and I, and I appreciate you, you coming on this. Thank you. And my final choice, of course, is when Joe Rogan got Elon Musk to blaze a J. <laughs> because Joe Rogan loves to work out and do MMA and Elon Musk is a crazy nerd. And so it was like, what? This dude is blazing a J with Joe Rogan? The MMA guy from News Radio? What? The Tesla guy blowing a J? Oh my God. <laughs> it's going to be funny when someone does the oral history of the rise and fall of podcasting <laughs> and where the Elon Musk episode falls in there. You know, they'll be like, you know, This American Life, they'll be like the serial thing, you know, all these little, you know, marks along the way. But, you know, President Obama sitting down with Mark Merritt and it's like, hey, remember that time Elon Musk smoked a joint of Rogan and lost 30% of Tesla's stock value? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you this, man. Uh, Joe Rogan, that guy's my hero. Because he's a muscle-bound <laughs> jerk. Elon Musk, that guy's also my hero. But for a different reason. He's a nerd jerk. <laughs> okay, that's all, all I got. Hey, only podcasting can only bring podcasting. all these great minds Joe together. Joe Rogan is well, great Jesse, on news radio. Always did a great job. <laughs> yeah, a gr- an underrated show. An underrated show. People uh, like their Phil Anything... Yeah. Yeah. Anything, anything, uh, Phil Hartman was on. Well, uh, Jesse, dude, thank you so much again, man. These are great choices. Definitely encourage people to check out Bullseye, Jordan, Jesse Go, and also all of the incredible pods over at the Maximum Fun Network. Jesse Thorne, thank you again, man. Thank you. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of List It on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast asks you to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.